men's prayer breakfast is um, canceled on Saturday, August the 19th. Uh, that was, I guess, didn't catch that. Uh, we're going to have the deacons meeting at 8 and then a prep school meeting for those in prep school and parents on um, the 19th, and that would be at 9 o'clock. And then we're also going to be participating in the uh, Fort Bend County Fair evangelism event September 29th to October 9th, and that's a good opportunity uh, for you to just learn some skills on evangelism. We've got a lot of evangelistic-oriented training going on. I'm leaving uh, two weeks from yesterday to go to um, New Jersey with Friends of Israel for a four-day what they call encounter event, which is oriented towards understanding the uh, Jewish community so that um, to uh, be more effective at evangelism. And so there's there's just a whole list of jam-packed things that we're going to a pastor's wife, friend of mine, um, went a month ago and was absolutely exhausted by the five days of intense uh, activity training, walking five to seven miles a day. I do five miles a day almost every day. What's, what's that? So anyhow, uh, evangelism at the county fair. Now on October the 8th, which is a Saturday, we are hosting an evangelism and apologetics seminar, or excuse me, October the 7th, that's Saturday. And you're going to want to be involved in that. Raleigh Morris, who's a missionary we support with Builders of Israel, is going to be here with another pastor that he, uh, that he's known for a while and they do this seminar. Uh, we're going to send you a link to the, to Builders of Israel. It's Builders of Israel, what, like one word, dot net. Go to their homepage. And there's a short video there explaining what they teach in this seminar. So it's all day. It's from like 9 in the morning until 5, 5.30 in the afternoon. But it is, uh, I mean, both of these guys have a tremendous amount of hands-on experience doing evangelism in, uh, with Raleigh. It's in the Jewish community. Uh, he's second generation, um, Messianic Jew and his father is, uh, was at Lubbock Bible Church in the early 70s when Charlie Clough was the pastor. And so then they got connected with me via that way. But they are, um, uh, <clears throat> they, they, and then his, his buddy has been a pastor in Utah. So between the two of them, they have a tremendous amount of experience witnessing, evangelizing two of the most difficult groups to uh, witness to, and that's Mormons and Jews. So they have a lot of experience. They have a lot of insights on a lot of things, and so it's going to be very, very good, very important to attend that. And then we have our annual church picnic scheduled for Saturday, October the 21st, and we ought to move it up to next week so that it'll rain. But we can't do that, so we'll just have to wait on the Lord for the rain. All right, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. 
they shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we open up God's word or get into a historical lesson tonight, let's bow our heads together and after a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, to have your word in front of us, to be able to uh, examine it in different translations, to get a better understanding of what is going on, especially, and be taught where we can understand it from the original languages. Now, Father, as we study tonight about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you will help us to think through these particular issues and get a greater understanding and appreciation for who our Lord is since the Incarnation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I have been working for a couple of weeks doing a lot of of modifying of some of my notes from my History of Doctrine course, and I don't have a lot of that even in this. I started from scratch going from a different direction to... um, It's kind of organized things a little differently. But as we have been going through our study of who Jesus was before he came, who Jesus is now that uh, we've had the incarnation, it's important for us to understand how our understanding of the present uh, union, hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ came to be understood. I mean, most of you, you know, you just talk about hypostatic union like it's a simple thing. But that's only because you've had somebody teach you and you haven't ever thought about it. You've never wrestled with trying to understand it. And so we're going to go back and see how the early church did it. And this is going back to the early period. We're going to start with the early church and work our way up through uh, till, until 451 A.D. with the uh, uh, Council and the Creed of Chalcedon. So we're going to just look through and see how they understood things. Now remember, we've I've emphasized this. There's three basic questions. The third question is it is important because it helps you answer the first two questions correctly. The first question is who was Jesus before he came? If Jesus isn't eternal God, then you don't have a Savior who can do what he's supposed to do. And that was the bottom line when you get to the Council of Nicaea. Then you ask the question, what was Jesus when he came? If he is not true humanity, again, you don't have a Savior who can save the human race. 
that is fundamental to grasp that. And you think that you got it because you've heard me say it and others say it for years. But they had to, it took them from 100 AD to 451. And most of the time that comes out to be about 351 years to articulate it correctly. Now, tonight I want us to wrestle with it just a little bit as we go through this. So the answer to this is, what, who was Jesus before he came? That was resolved in what is known as the Arian Controversy and was resolved in the, at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Then they had to answer the question. It became very clear by the time they finished with their discussions, debates, and deliberations at Nicaea that they have to figure out who Jesus was when he came. It's one thing to say Jesus is God and Jesus is man, but how do you put that? How do you put that together? And so you had three wrong attempts with Apollinarius, Nestorius, and Eutyches. Thinking through their solutions is helpful. And then the last question, why did the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, come to the earth, understanding that he had to be both undiminished deity and genuine sinless humanity is necessary for salvation to be accomplished. So what we've done is this sort of mini-series on Christology is we had to understand who God is in terms of his unity and plurality, and in that we dealt to some degree with the Arian controversy, and we dealt to some degree with the issue of, of uh, the eternality, not just the preexistence of Jesus, but the e- e- eternality. So we then talked about that in detail, going through passages in the Old Testament, passages in the New Testament that all indicated both his eternality and his humanity. Then we went to passages in the New Testament that taught about his deity and his humanity. And then last time we looked at the passages that talked about the offices of Christ, that he is the he holds three offices, prophet, priest, and king, and that they are not exercised at the same time, but consecutively. So during the incarnation, he was functioning primarily as a prophet up until the night before he went to the cross. And then we have what is called the high priestly prayer in John 17 and his sacrificial work on the cross uh, the next day. And that is the work of a priest. And then in his ascension to heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he functions as our high priest and the one who intercedes for us. One of the many conclusions from that is that if Jesus is at the right hand of the Father as a high priest, then that means that is the primary reason why we don't pray to Jesus. A lot of people pray to Jesus. And it's not like it's a sin or you're falling apart or you're going to go to hell or lose your salvation or anything like that. But it just shows a lack of biblical teaching and a lack of biblical knowledge, understanding the role of the son in this dispensation is that he is the one who is praying to the father for us as our intercessor and priest. And you don't pray to an intercessor or priest. So we went through that, and then tonight what we're going to look at is what did the early church believe? You'll always run into people who say, I just wish we were like the early church. 
What I always want to answer is, well, that revealed the level of your ignorance is as great as in the early church. You just don't understand the early church. They were really ignorant. Now, I'm not talking about the period when they had the apostles. But as soon as the last apostle died, it's like they lost their spiritual IQ, went from 300 to 5. And it took a long time before they, they learned it. And that's one of the one of those things that a lot of people have trouble with when they first study church history is how did they suddenly become so confused about everything? And it's because they didn't have that that leadership there, and they had to develop their understanding of how to study the Bible and how to learn it uh, for for themselves. So immediately after the death of the last apostle, who is John, um, you discover the ap- early apostolic or post-apostolic period, and their their understanding is vague. They repeat a lot of good things. You read them, and you say, well, they've got it right. Well, that's because they're just quoting Scripture. They're not analyzing anything. They're not answering any of the detailed questions that have been asked over the centuries. They're not explaining how it works, and they're not, they don't understand anything that you understand. They don't even have the word Trinity. They don't have the word hypostatic union. So how can they think as precisely as you and I can think? We can think more precisely than Paul. That always shocks people. Because to think precisely, you have to have precise vocabulary. And he did not have the precise vocabulary that we have. Not only from the early church, but because in English, because so much has been done in terms of biblical study and theology in the history of the English-speaking peoples, English has an extremely advanced technical vocabulary for theology that you don't find in a lot of other uh, languages. You might find it in German, but you don't find it in a lot of other languages. Just talk to any missionary who's gone, especially into third world countries or into areas where there's been no impact of Christianity whatsoever. They have to start at very basics like this is a Bible. The word Bible means book. This is a book God gave us. Who is God? And it may take him a year to define God. So we have it uh, very easy because of, of, of our tradition. So what did the early church believe about Jesus? Well, they, we're going to look at early Christology, and these are the key scriptures, and they go to these same scriptures, but they, they didn't always have a good handle on how to study the Bible or how to interpret the Bible. And so if you can, you can believe the Bible is inerrant, and I can give you a dozen examples of, of, of uh, well-known theologians today who claim to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but they give it away because they have an allegorical interpretation. So you can believe all the right things, but if you have the wrong hermeneutic, the wrong interpretation, then you're going to destroy everything you claim is revealed inerrantly. So these are passages. We've studied them in the last several weeks. Galatians 4, 4 and 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, Matthew 1, 23, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Philippians 2, 6 and 7, which is our primary passage, John 1, 1 through 14, uh, Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, and we could add a couple of passages from Colossians 1 as well. 
So what we're studying is Christology. Christ is from Christ. Ology is from Logos, meaning the study of Christ. And in a book on the um, Christological controversy in the early church um, by Richard A. Norris, Jr., he defines it this way, Christology at its heart is the inquiry and reflection that are concerned with Jesus in his messianic character. That's a key phrase, in his messianic character. In other words, Christology asks what is presupposed and implied by the fact that Jesus is the elect Son of God. What does that mean? What does it implicate? The one through whose life, death, and resurrection God has acted to realize his purpose for humanity. And this fact imposes from the beginning a certain logic on Christology. To understand or evaluate Jesus Christologically means, on the one hand, to ask about his relation to God. In other words, who was Jesus before he came? And, on the other hand, to seek a way of expressing his representative character as a human being, and that is, who was Jesus when he came? His status as the one in whom humanity's common destiny is both summed up and determined. So that's Christology. It's the study of Christ in terms of his messianic character. So scripture says that we must grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things you've heard almost every pastor you've ever listened to, from Charlie Clough to Pastor Theme to me to who knows who else, and they've all bemoaned the ignorance of most Christians about Jesus and about how to understand the Gospels. And so there's a lot of uh, fallacious thinking that is out there. But part of it is just understanding who Jesus is. So how do we understand Jesus? Now, here we have a human being. We're, we're composed of three parts. We have a human body, physical body. We have a human soul, and we have a human spirit if we are saved. But this is how man was created, so I've got all of the elements there. This is the ideal human. Now, uh-oh, he disappeared again. Now we have the second person of the Trinity in all of his glory, eternal, infinite, sinless, perfectly righteous and just, omnipresent, omnipotent. How in the world does that go into a finite human body? Explain that. How does that happen? Well, there have been various attempts. One one attempt would be just to say, well, it's it he he it just goes into the body. Well, wait a minute. That's sort of like the indwelling or the endowment of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But that's not the incarnation. There's a difference between Christ being incarnate, being in the flesh being a true human, that's different from the from indwelling. So it's not indwelling. Other attempts were to say, well, you have the deity of Christ, 
replace the human soul, the rational part of man. Well, wait a minute. Then man's not, then he's not fully human. You've got to be fully human to, be, to go to the cross to die for humans. So you can't have God taking the part of something else. And, um, well, maybe he's just immaterially, he's, he's just divided and you've got this person of the eternal second person of the Trinity and this person of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, then you've got two persons and two natures. Sounds like he's got a split personality. So you see that all of these different ways that I'm mentioning were tried in the early church and they're all found wanting. So it's helpful to think through these things because it will help each of us sort of refine and focus our own understanding of who Jesus is. In the early church fathers, the primary word that I always use to explain the early church fathers, this would be in the period from 100 to 150, is they're vague. They just repeat the words of Scripture. They don't explain them. They don't uh, explain the uh, things that look as if um, uh, there's some sort of, of conflict that's going on there. And how can Jesus be fully God and not infinite? Because Jesus in his human body is finite. How does that work? So we've got questions like that. So the main thing that you do see, though, in that time is that they are talking about God has provided salvation and what was promised and prophesied in the, uh, in the Old Testament had come to fulfillment in Jesus. And the second thing that they say is that Jesus was the one through whom God would rule mankind, rule the planet, and was... Uh, the mediator to salvation. Those things are clear, but they don't go much beyond that. They don't answer questions like high, uh, like how. So in First Clement, this is Clement of Rome. Uh, Roman Catholics think he's the second pope after Peter, but that's not true. Um, and he refers to G- the Lord Jesus according to the flesh. So he understands the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, although he doesn't go, try to explain it any more, uh, any more than that. In a um, second passage, he says, um, this is the way, beloved, in which we found our salvation. Jesus Christ, the high priest of our offerings, the defender and helper of our weaknesses. See, he's not saying much more than what Scripture says. He's just restating it. Uh, through this one, we look intently to the heights of heavens. Through this one, we see as in the mirror his unblemished and lofty face. Through this one, the eyes of our heart have been opened. Through this one, our foolish and darkened understanding springs up into the light. Through this one, the Master has willed the immortal knowledge that we should taste, quote, and the quote is from uh, Hebrews 1, uh, uh, verse 2, I believe. Then we have another writing. It's called The Shepherd. It was well-respected in the early church. It's really mystical, and again, it doesn't say much. It was written by a man named Hermas, and he writes that... uh, 
have these different quotes. I'm going to connect them together. He says, but why did the Lord take his son and the glorious angels as counselor concerning the inheritance of the servant? Listen, the Holy Spirit which preexists, which created all. See, what's happening here is he is confusing the Holy Spirit with the Son of God. He merges them together. In another passage, he says, he talks about the fact that there is in the midst of this group of men, he says in the midst of them was a particular man. Now, he's going to talk about that particular man in these next two quotations, but he calls him something a little different. He calls him a glorious man. There's a particular man tall with such size that he rose above the tower. Then a little later, He says, therefore, having completed these things, the glorious man and ruler of the whole tower called the shepherd and handed all the stones over to him. Now, who's this glorious man and ruler? A few little while later, he says, uh, look at where I've underlined, but the door is the son of God. Uh, This is the only entrance to the Lord. Therefore, no one will enter it into otherwise except through his son. So it's clear Christ is the only way to God. And then he says, do you see, he said, the six men and the glorious and great man. The glorious and great man is Jesus. He says, do you see the six men and the glorious and great man among them who walked around the tower? And I, I said, I see. And then in, in, um, down here past eight, it says, the glorious man, he said, is the son of God. And those are six glorious angels who are supporting him on the right and on the left. None of these glorious angels will enter into the presence of God without him. Whoever does not receive his name will not enter into the kingdom. So he understands that Christ is spirit, that he's the son, that he is man, and an angel. So he's confusing him with the spirit, and he also confuses him as, as an angel. So he sees Jesus as coming from heaven as a spirit and an angel, but in a way that is beyond any other angel. So he's not not very clear. Then we come to Ignatius of Antioch. And Ignatius lives, overlaps with a lot of the work of the apostles. And he is, uh, Ignatius was a, a bishop in the uh, early church. He's a pastor. He's in uh, Antioch of Syria, which was where Paul and Barnabas were involved in the, in the church there. And he is, um, he's Syrian, but he's still, um, but he has, doesn't get very detailed about Jesus. He says Jesus was the Son of God. And in this uh, epistle that he writes to the um, Magnesians, he says that there is one God who revealed himself through Jesus Christ, his Son. And then in another passage, an epistle to the Tralians, he um he writes uh, that he is of the family of David, the one of Mary, he who truly was born, both ate and drank, truly was persecuted by Pontius Pilate. Now, he wrote, these, he wrote seven epistles because Ignatius was arrested in Syria, and he was escorted back to Rome by ten Roman soldiers. Along the way, he stopped at almost all the major churches and t- got to, to speak and teach. They, they gave him a lot of freedom, and he wrote... Uh, seven uh, epistles, and those are 
uh, considered quite valuable for understanding this early part of the second century. But he sees Jesus as the Son of God and that Jesus is man, but there's no nothing that indicates he's trying to put these things together. In his epistle to the Ephesians, he writes that this uh, one physician who is Jesus, both fleshly and spiritual, born and unborn, God in man, true life and death, both of Mary and of God. And that's great. He's got that much right. But he doesn't. He has no understanding of how that fits together. He's just stating this. He's not trying to resolve or answer the question, well, if you believe in one God and you say Jesus is God, sounds like you've got more than one God. They're, they're just restating what Scripture says without trying to analyze or explain any of the discrepancies. Then you get the the uh, apologists from 150 to 200, and they get to a stage where there's more response and antagonism to Christianity. And so what they have to do is explain what this means. So they're starting to answer some of these questions by this time. And one of the early ones is Justin Martyr. Now, Justin is really important in our discussion here. Uh, Justin is important because he takes a stab at explaining who Jesus is in terms of being the God-man, how that relates together. And he sees the Logos as God's son. Now, this word Logos has a rich heritage in Greek philosophy. And so the problem you really see is the problem you see today. What's the problem you see today? You have a host of churches that have bought into all of the secular postmodern world views of uh, wokeism, Marxism, all of the other isms that are going on today. They're promoting the rights of homosexuals. They're having, um, you know, transvestites come and get into their pulpit and preach. All kinds of things are going on. What's the problem? They ha- they have not left the modern worldview behind. They they are, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, they've believed in Christ as Savior, but they haven't shifted their worldview from a pagan worldview to a biblical worldview. And that's what happened in the early church. A lot of these men, Justin Martyr, Origen, um, many of the others, are trained and schooled in Greek philosophy. And the philosophical viewpoint, the worldview of this time period, really from now, uh, from this time period in the second century until about the 10th or 11th century, is Platonism in one form or another. And in Platonism, the material world is, is really corrupted. And what, the reason they refer to Platonism as idealism, ultimate reality is in this ideal world. And so you have to be in touch with that, and you get in touch with it through mysticism and other ways like that. But if, if God were to become truly embodied in human flesh, he would be corrupted by sin. That's their view. Okay, so that, so it leads to lots of problems in the early church because they're using the categories of Greek philosophy and imposing that on Scripture rather than starting with the Scripture to challenge their presuppositions that have been shaped by Greek, Greek philosophy. So they, they latch onto this word logos, and as I pointed out earlier in our study, this really goes back in John's thinking to the, to the uh, Aramaic word memra, 
and we went back and we went through the rabbis and the various rabbinical ideals, ideas of the Mimra as the spoken word of God who was with God and was, was uh, distinct from God and was God himself and all of those categories, and we reviewed that. But they're taking the word logos, which is the Greek word that John used, and they're, they're loading it up with all of this philosophy that that is related to Platonism and it's related to Gnosticism and it's related to all kinds of uh, pagan philosophies in the Greco-Roman Roman world. But for so Justin looks at this and he says the Logos is God's son, and so throughout this time period, for the next two or three hundred years, they're going to constantly refer to the the, the Savior Messiah as the Logos. The Logos is God's son. He believes the Logos is distinct from the Father, but begotten from him. He doesn't explain that. The log, in other words, is it begotten eternally, or is he begotten at a point of time in eternity past? The Logos is the one who reveals the Father to Israel and was incarnate body, soul, and spirit. And that's in his first uh, apology, 10.1. So that's his view, and his contribution is just heavily influenced by both Stoicism and Platonic philosophy. And for him, the Lagos is primary the, primarily the rational spirit. It is the reason of God, the rationality of God. And secondly, he sees the Lagos as not the first or ultimate deity, because he, he, although he doesn't come right out and say it, what his implication is, is that this Logos somehow emanates from the ultimate God at some point in eternity past. So in his view, the Logos really is derivative and thus inferior to God. Now that's important. Now those of you who've been coming and listening to the what we've been going over in the Interlock series the last several uh, Tuesday nights with the whole idea of the chain of being and continuity of being, that was inherent to Stoicism and Platonism. And so you have this whatever the deity is at the top, and then he sort of spins out the Logos as the rational entity, so it's less than full deity. And then you get, get, then, then he spins out these lesser beings that are the spirit beings or the angels. And so you get this hierarchy of, of, of being. That's at the core of the pagan thinking at that time. Uh, Norris in his book says, the indescribable, incomprehensible creator touches the world only through his derivative self-expression. He's explaining, um, Justin's view. So he spins out this rational spirit, and that's the only point of contact. He's the mediator, but he's not fully God, and he's not fully man. Uh, the Logos, is, he says the Logos forms the universe. He appears to Abraham and Moses and confers knowledge of God on all humanity by giving people a share in God's rational nature. So you've got to be thinking in terms of that continuity of being things I've been teaching. So the problem is that the Logos theology suggested a plurality in the God, God, in God. But you have the Manichaeans. Now, we studied them earlier when we were talking about, I mean, the Monarchians. Uh, they were, er, earlier, they emphasized the unity of God, 
not the plurality of God, the oneness of God. And so you had the the um, modalistic monarchians where God appeared as Father, then he appeared as Son, then he appears as the Holy Spirit. But he's just one God. There's no three persons. And the, the then you have the... Um, uh, uh, dynamic monarchians who are like the Arians that, that God spins out uh, the Logos at some later point. And so underlying this is that chain of being idea that God is the ultimate reality. He spins out lo- the Logos, then come the angels, and then come mankind. So the Logos is less than fully God. Now, I've already given you the punchline at the end. So what's the problem? If you're less than fully God, you can't you can't take care of the sins of the world. So he is, and he isn't fully man. So you can't have a, a savior who's not fully human. So this is a problem. But but Justin Martyr doesn't go through this, and so this hangs around, and the idea gets refined and and shapes others along the way. He also has a struggle to explain, oh, lost that point, to explain how infinite God could take on finite humanity. They just can't figure that out. So they, they using the tools of Greek philosophy in terms of this continuity of being to answer that, those questions. Then you have a really good guy named Melito of Sardis. We don't know much about him, but we did uncover, discover one of his writings in the 1940s. And he clear, he's clear. He's very focused on Paul. He says, Christ is fully God who became incarnate for the purpose of the redemption of mankind. And he sees the incarnation as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the Mosaic Covenant. He emphasizes the value of God's people before Christ. And then he says the incarnation is a genuine physical reality, which is a rebuttal to docetism. See, on the other side, you had people saying from that Platonic idea, Jesus can't really be a physical human being. He just appears that way. He's just a shadow. Uh, and so he appears to be real and physical, but he isn't. And the Greek word for appearing is the word dokeo. So it's docetism, or technically it would be docetism. But um, so that's that's what they're having to refute that on the one side, and then they're having to refute um, Marcionism and other things on the other end. And Melito describes Christ as by nature God and man. So he's 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 got it focused. So there's people. I mean, we don't have but a small percentage of what was written and influential during this time period. So we know there are those like Melito who are squared away, but they haven't gone very far in their analysis of it. Then we have a great guy named Irenaeus of Lyon. He is premillennial. He has a lot of features of his uh, understanding that would be considered. Uh, early forms of dispensationalism, and his dates are 130 to 200. But when you look at Christology, he sees the problem with Marcion. Now, I haven't mentioned much about Marcion. Marcion was deeply anti-Semitic, and anything in the Bible that that was written by a Jew or uh, has a lot of positive things to say about the Jews has to be taken out. So he takes out his scalpel, and he cuts off the Old Testament and says the Old Testament God was a God that was spun off um, at one time in the past, and he's an evil God. 
and then he gets his his scalpel out and he cuts off Romans 9 to 11 and he goes to uh Hebrews and gets rid of Hebrews and James and 1st and 2nd Peter cuz they're all uh Jewish focused epistles and he gets rid of everything but part of Luke no Matthew no Mark no John they're too Jewish so he's a real problem and he has a he has a derivative Jesus as well and he ends up with these two gods, the main God and then this Old Testament evil God. Secondly, uh, Irenaeus goes after him uh, because he understands that the ultimate God is the creator God and was intimately involved with his creatures in the material realm. So he's just blasting away at everything that's being influenced by Platonism and Stoicism. Third, he understood Justin's arguments but rejected his view of an intermediate logos. He recognized that it suggested a a plurality of gods, and he didn't quite understand that yet, so he hadn't got the Trinity down yet. So for Irenaeus, Christ is fully God and accomplished the mediation not because he is an in-between creature, but that as full deity he takes on true humanity, and it's the act of incarnation which is the mediation that's what makes jesus the mediator is he's fully god and fully man so he can be fulfill the role of mediator between god and man and second for irenaeus the incarnation is real because it represents the unity of god with humanity and the unity of human history with god god the logos takes to himself in Christ the being of Adam. And that's clear. Then we get to Tertullian. Now, Tertullian was a Montanist, and he was a lawyer. He's absolutely brilliant. He is a Latin-speaking church father who is in Carthage. That's sort of north, That's like Tunisia today in northern Africa on the Mediterranean, more to the west than to the east. And he understood that salvation, redemption, involved the whole human person, body, soul, and spirit. Second, he understood that the physical bodily resurrection of Christ indicated that the whole of physical reality was going to be redeemed. So the bodies, physical bodies are going to be redeemed for believers. The physical planet is going to be redeemed. The curse is going to be turned back. And that means that Christ's death redeems the entire physical creation. So the whole idea in Platonism and Stoicism that physicality is somehow corrupted and evil is is dealt with. In his work on Against Praxius, he argued against the monarchians who emphasized the absolute unity of God. Think of the monarchians as the Unitarians of the ancient world. Okay? And in uh, monarchianism, there's a problem because they they refuse to accept a plurality, a, a, a trinity. And remember, it is Tertullian who coins the word trinitas. Nobody used that word before Tertullian. And uh, what are his dates? His dates are 160 to 225. So it's 200. It's 100 years after the apostle, last apostle died and uh, before he coins the word trinitas to explain the plurality of the Godhead. So he sees two separate persons, personae, in the Godhead. Christ is one person, and in Christ he says there's a duality of two persons, flesh and spirit. So he has a human and divine 
ways of being in Jesus. But for him, these two are mingled. That's just the way he had the language. Now, later that's going to be rejected, but he's not mingling them in a way that they would react or change one another. That's what got rejected, was that later on we get to uh, Eutyches. He mixes the humanity and deity in Jesus, and so you really get a third something, and, and the humanity changes the deity, and the deity changes the, the humanity. Origen comes along, and he's extremely influenced by Platonism and Stoicism. He, he does see the Logos as the mediator between God and his created order. He's getting his view of the mediator role from, um, from Justin Martyr. Okay, so it's, it's flawed. He sees that as a secondary deity. He has the Logos, though he's eternal, He's in some way not fully divine. That goes back to uh, to Justin Martyr, that his view of the mediator was it was some kind of emanation from God, and it's not eternal, it's not fully God, it's, a se- it's secondary to ulti- the ultimate deity. He has this view, he says, the rational spirits all fell and had to work their way back to God through knowledge. So you've got, now think about this, and some of you are thinking, I, this is so weird. I don't know anybody like this. Yes, you do, but I'm not going to tell you who his name is. Some of you that I see out there were actually at his ordination at one time. So there's a doctrinal pastor, and there were some people who had at one time gone to his church who went on the trip to Israel this, this last uh, trip. And they came up to me and they said, uh, so, so explain how you understand the fall of the angels and the origin of the uh, angelic revolt. And I said, well, a third of the angels fall. And they said, have you ever heard of view that all of the angels fell and then they had to work their way back to God? And I said, no, I, I, I've never heard that. That's really strange. That, I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure I've run across that in church history. Well, as I was reading and studying on this today, I went, wow, that's what this sounds like. So you've got a doctrinal pastor out there whose integrity I uh, have always questioned. And um, so he's picked up this idea, and he's basically teaching a form of Gnosticism in relation to the creation and fall of the angels, which is just absurd. So anyway, this is relevant to today. That's my point, is you may think that, oh, I've never heard anything like that. That's bizarre. Solomon said it best. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything just gets revamped. So they also refer to Logos as the wisdom of God. And so in his view, uh, the wisdom Logos was the mediator to the fallen spirits, which led to the incarnation. And so for him, the unification of the Logos with one of those rational spirits that did not fall brings you the soul of Jesus. This sounds like science fiction. What kind of drugs is he on? He's into full-bore mysticism. The next stage came when this soul was embodied through human birth. That's his explanation. And the problem with him is he's very influential. Uh, he started off as a theologian in, in uh, Alexandria, Egypt, which was one of the major 
uh, bishoprics. You had uh, you had Rome, you had Constantinople, you had Alexandria, uh, you had Antioch, and you had Jerusalem. And so he's down there in Egypt, and it, that area they were very much into allegory, they were into mysticism, and that influenced the theology that came out of northern northern Egypt. So he get, got crossways with his bit, bishop, who kicked him out of Alexandria. So he went. Uh, up the coast to Caesarea by the sea. Those of you who've been to Israel have been to Caesarea. So this is in the uh, early 200s. So this is after the time period that we were talking about when we were there, although I do mention him in the uh, travel guide. Uh, he lived there, and he wrote and did a lot of fine work that has helped us in terms of uh, ancient manuscripts and collating en- ancient manuscripts, but its theology and its hermeneutics were extremely destructive. Uh, so he um, he just br- brings a lot of f- problems. So as we kind of conclude that, we see that Origen is similar to Justin in the way that he expresses the need for a mediator, and that mediator is something less than God. He has a universe that's hierarchical. In other words, he's influenced by this continuity of being idea. And um, uh, for him, the divine does not mix very directly with matter. So therefore, God is extremely transcendent, and he has to emanate this secondary deity who will be the mediator because God's so transcendent, he's not very personal. So he really doesn't interact with his creatures. And so it's the logos, that that emanation that comes from God, the rational soul, um, mediates God to the human soul so that uh, the human soul can mediate God's son to the body. That's what he says. Isn't that clear? And finally, this double mediation that he comes up with results in Jesus as a human being, a soul inhabiting a body, perfectly united as intelligence with the original, the divine intelligence or wisdom. But it's not fully, he's not fully God. He's not fully man. Now, he's going to have a, a, an influence on a, a presbyter in northern uh, Egypt by the name of Arius. And so that sets the stage for... Uh, understanding the rise of Arianism. So in this last slide here, I just want to wrap up what we've seen. Number one, in the tradition of Justin, there's a view that the Logos is something less than fully God. Second, this developed because of the influence of Greek philosophy. The worldview of the day influenced. They did not transform their thinking. Remember Romans 12, 2, we're not to be conformed to the world, pressed into the mold of the world. You've got to understand the worldview of the day so that you understand the garbage that's in your soul. Because your sin nature wants to disguise the garbage in your soul so you don't get rid of it. Third, by the time of origin, the worldview is shifted to middle and to then to Neoplatonism And in essence, as I've said, all views of Platonism deny the significance of the material world and see it as somewhat corrupt, if not evil. 
Okay, so Christ could not have had a genuine material body. Those are all problems that are, uh, come about because of that. On the other hand, there are those that had a clear statement of Christ as undiminished deity and genuine sinless humanity, but how to explain that was either ignored or the various, or various attempts were less than honest with the text of Scripture. They don't really... They give, have a high view of Scripture, but they don't have a well-developed philosophy of hermeneutics, of interpretation. So this sets the stage for the conflict with Arius and Athanasius, which consumed most of the 4th century. Now, get your timeline right. You have major persecutions in the Roman Empire in the period of the 3rd century. We're talking 250, 260, 270. Uh, the Decian persecution is one. There were only uh, three, I think, only three empire-wide persecutions. Most of them were just isolated uh, geographically to certain areas. But there's this, world, uh, this empire-wide persecution towards the end of the, uh, of the uh, 200s. And then when Constantine becomes emperor, he has this vision. There's a battle at um, Milvan Bridge in Rome. And he has this vision that of a cross in the sky and a voice saying, by this sign, conquer. So he converts to Christianity. Who knows? And he wins, and he becomes the emperor. And his mother's a Christian, Helena. Helena's the one who go, later makes a, makes a, goes on one of the first uh, Christian tours of Israel, looking for the, where was the, where was Golgotha, where was the tomb, where was Jesus born, asking all those questions. And so that's why we know where a lot of these places are, is because of, because of that. But Constantine, uh, issues an Edict of Toleration in 313. And that Edict of Toleration, he, he legalizes Christianity. And he almost makes everything else illegal. It's funny how when people talk about to- tolerance, that they're really talking about we're just shifting, we're going to be intolerant to a different group of people now. But that's what sets the stage. So when he becomes emperor, it's only... A few years later, in 318, that Arius begins to teach his heresy that there was a time when Christ was not. And then it erupts into theological controversy uh, in ways that had never been experienced before because you didn't have peace. I mean, Christians were keeping their head down. They didn't want to get out there in public and have public debates over all these theological topics, but now they're not going to be persecuted because they've been declared legal. And so there's the, this, this has this disruptive influence on the peace of the Roman Empire, and Constantine wants peace in his kingdom. So he decides that all of the primary people and all of the Christian bishops need to come to his summer palace at Nicaea, and he's going to preside over it, but he didn't have much to say because all of the theological discussion was way over his head. And um, and it's at Nicaea that they're going to uh, duke it out and debate the issues related to the eternality of the Son of God. And so Arius was saying he's not eternal. He he doesn't become the Messiah, the Messiah inside of history. 
he becomes he is uh, generated by God or created by God at some time in eternity past. And he was he had a great personality. Satan always uses people with great personalities. He has a great personality, and he's a musician. And so he writes little uh, contemporary choruses of the period that said there was a time when Christ was not. And so because it's a catchy tune and everybody likes it, it makes them feel good, that people are being influenced in this view that Jesus was created at some time in the past, but he's not eternal God. So that's that's just a real problem. And so we have this uh, theologian, bishop down in Egypt named Athanasius who gets it. Now, as you come together in this debate, everyone agreed that the logos or the wisdom of God was divine. You know, I've never liked using that word. I always prefer the word deity. What is div- what does divine mean? And they had as much a problem defining it then as we do today. And so they couldn't get clear Jesus could be elevated to deity, but does that make him really deity if he's not eternal? So you have to think through what exactly does it mean. Did it denote a full uh, degree of deity or just something that was a partial deity, something attributed, uh, or is it something that is derivative and given later? Now, all of these men also held to views that were derived from Greek philosophy. So many of them are still influenced by Platonism and Gnosticism and Stoicism and the idea of continuity of being. The problem was to explain who Jesus was before he came, after he came, and to understand why he came. Now, Arius had two basic beliefs. One was that the Logos could not be fully God. He could not be undiminished deity because he was, he held firmly to monarchianism. He was a Unitarian. If, if Jesus is, is fully God, then you've got a problem. You've got two gods. So he's insisting on Unitarianism. So presuppositionally, he rejects the idea that Jesus can be undiminished deity. And secondly, he said that the Logos is necessary to carry out the mediatorial role between the transcendent God and the created world. Where did he get that idea? Justin Martyr, remember? We talked about that. So I'm just tr- tracing how these ideas morph and change. So they come together at the Council of Nicaea, and there's basically three groups. And let me tell you something. Whatever the issue, whether it's the COVID, COVID virus, whether it's the vaccines, whether it's states' rights, whether it has something to do with the uh, ecology. 10% of the people are on one side and understand the issues. 10% of the people are opposed to them, and they understand the issues. And 80% of the people are ignorant, and they are swayed by only emotion and glitz. That's a universal law. So that's what happens here. The ones who favored Arius were made up about 10%. Those who were opposed to Arius made up, they were about 10%. Those that understood the issues, 80%. They didn't have a clue. And they're swayed by emotion. They're swayed by personality. They're swayed by power and influence. So not much has changed over the last 1,700 years. 
Athanasius' argument was simple. It's based on the necessity of the incarnation being in a genuine human body in order that as true humanity, the Logos, the Messiah, could die as a substitute for mankind. A human had to die for humanity. So he had to be true humanity. And so they come up with the Nicene Creed. Now, I'm just going to go to the underlying parts. And the middle part is about the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his deity, begotten of Father as only begotten. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's down here. It is begotten, not created. So there, 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 it's become a technical term that the relationship between the eternal son is he is eternally begotten by the eternal father. Uh, so he is from the essence of the father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. So he's eternal. He is of the same essence. Now, this is the word homo, which means same, and usia, which is being. He's of the same essence, the same being as God. Now, the other side said he was of similar essence, of similar being. And that word was homoousion. So they put a, an I right here between the two O's. And... Um, Everything turned on just that that one uh, one um, that one letter, so that was the issue. And some people, like Gibbon, who wrote the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, said that you know nothing. It was just a simple iota, nothing mattered. It just it wasn't any more significant than that. Um, but it's a lot more significant than that. Is Jesus the same essence as the Father, or is he just of similar essence to the Father? That was the issue. Okay, so then you have three views, and these these will go by rather quickly. You had Ap- Apollinarius, who lives from 310 to 390, so he's only 15 years old at Nicaea, but he uh, becomes an Orthodox Nicaean. He does not like Arianism at all. He is strongly opposed to it, and the question which had to be resolved after Nicaea was, so who was Jesus when he came? What is the relationship of the humanity to the deity of Christ? And so he comes up with a view, takes his takes the first stab at it, and says that Jesus did not have a human rational soul. The center of consciousness in Jesus was not human. The Logos uh, indwelt him, so he had the Logos replaced the rational soul in in Jesus. But that means that the Messiah is not fully human. He's only part human and part God. So that becomes a real problem. So how did Apollinarianism understand him? See, on the left you have a picture of true humanity. You have a human body, and then there is the immaterial human soul and the immaterial human spirit. So for Apollinarius, you have a human body and a human spirit, but the divine soul replaces the human soul. So Jesus isn't fully man. Norris comments the divine Logos became human in the sense that, the, that he became embodied and thus shared the structural constitution of a human being. That means his body. 
He became an enfleshed intellect, though the intellect in question was not a created one. He does not forget or ignore a human center of life and consciousness in Jesus. He denies it. See, in Athanasius, he just ignored it. He didn't go to that, go that, to that question. But with Apollinarius, he just denies that Jesus has a human center and a human consciousness. That's declared heretical in the Creed of Constantinople in 381, and I'm not going to take the time to read that. We'll get to the good one in a minute. Nestorius is the next one. He's born sometime after 351, and he dies after 451. He was the patriarch of Constantinople, so that's one of the most prestigious Christian positions. And he takes a stab at it. He says instead of one person and two natures, he has two persons and two natures. Now, the orthodox view is Jesus is one person, and there's a unity there. We call it the what? Hypostatic union. There's a unity there of two natures, but he's one person. So um, Nestorius says there are two persons and two natures. And he gets into a conflict with Cyril of, of, of uh, Alexandria, and the conflict began when Nestorius claimed that Mary was not the Theotokos. Theotokos was a technical word for God-bearer. Now, we wouldn't like that word. We would say she's the mother of Jesus' humanity. But that was the big battle. Is he the, the, is he the Theotokos or the Christotokos or uh, what was he? So um, uh, they said, uh, Nestorius said that uh, Mary wasn't the Theotokos the mother of God, but the Theodakos, with the D as in Delta, the recipient of God. So the issue is whether the divine Logos was born of a human mother or is the divine Logos subject to the human attributes of Jesus. That would mix the two. So he doesn't want to mix. He, he's right. You don't mix them. They're like oil and water. They can't be mixed. Then he has uh, this conflict with Cyril, Cyril because Cyril believed that Jesus' human nature had a human body, human soul, and human spirit. He was not an Apollinarian. Now, he comes along, and he believes that the one person suffered on the cross and died. The one person is raised from the dead. He emphasizes John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which is a passage we've been studying. And he insisted that this incarnation does not change the deity of the Son. And Cyril is the one who originated the phrase, a union of hypostasis, or hypostatic union. It comes from Cyril of Alexandria, who is in the, lives in the early 5th century A.D., so he had one hypostasis, the union of deity with humanity for a full human existence without mixture, and he, does, he rejects the composite nature of, of the deity and humanity that was set forth by Apollinarius. So Nestorianism basically has Jesus split. You've got the divine nature and divine person and human nature and human person. The last one to take a shot at it was Eutyches, he lives from 378 to 454. He's the Archimandrite. I hadn't seen that word before. He's the Archimandrite of a monastery. 
basically that's the same as an abbot. He's the head of the monastery in Constantinople. And he opposed Nestorianism and went to the opposite extreme of mixing the two natures of Christ. So he blends them. And so they're not full deity anymore, and it's not true humanity anymore. It's something else. It's a third something. And so while they're trying to figure all of this out, it is Leo of Rome, who's the bishop of Rome, who solves the problem. And he writes a lengthy theological discourse to to resolve and to explain the hypostatic union. And it is called the Tome of Leo. And so that resolves it. They have a meeting at Chalcedon, which is not far from Constantinople in 451. Eutyches is exiled as a heretic. So this was his view. You have human nature and divine nature, and they're just blended all together inside of Jesus. So let's look at the Chalcedonian Creed before we wrap up. Just a section on dealing with the um, person of Christ. We also teach that we apprehend this one and only Christ. Notice emphasis on unity. Son, Lord, only begotten. In two natures. So he's got one person, two natures. And we do this without confusing the two natures. Who confused the two natures? Eutyches. He's got them mixed up. No, without confusing the two natures, without transmuting one nature uh, into the other. And so that smacks of Apollinarianism. Uh, without, dividing, without, contra- without dividing them into two separate categories, so they're so distinct as with, uh, uh, as with Nestorius, without contrasting them according to area or function. The distinctiveness of each nature is not nullified by the union. So by putting deity and humanity together, one does not cancel out the other. He said they are not divided or cut into two persons, but are together the one and only and only begotten Logos of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus have the prophets of old testified, thus the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, thus the symbol of the fathers has handed down to us. Now, that language may seem familiar to you in a definition that I use on the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, divine and human in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. Now you know how we got that definition. It took, it took 250 years. No, it took 350 years. 350 years. And you just can just rattle off that definition just as quick as you can and think that, wow, I'm so smart. That's because you're standing on top of about 20 other giants are 20 giants, one standing on top of the other. And you're just at the top thinking, wow, I, I understand this. Do you really? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this and to come to understand a little more clearly, perhaps, how the uh, union of humanity and deity in Christ 
uh, takes place, what it means by these words that we use and how they came came to be, and that we have a distinctive Savior who is eternal, infinite God in every aspect and who is also true, genuine, sinless humanity, and that that has been united in his person and will remain there forever and ever and ever. God united with his creature. And, Father, that demonstrates your love toward us and your desire to save us and provide a perfect salvation. And so now when we think of our Savior, we can think of him in much more precise terms. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.